join me as we read Acts uh, chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up <clears throat> among the brothers, the company of persons, which was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you, you have chosen to take the place in his ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thank you, Gordon. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Uh, some of you know, probably a lot of you don't, that uh, on Monday last, uh, I tested positive for COVID again. Um, so that's why I'm wearing a mask today. I don't. I feel great. I just don't want to spread it around. I had what amounts to a cold. So um, I filled up the wastebasket with tissues, and I ate all the cough drops in the house. Uh, but now I'm good, so everything's fine. Uh, Tracy has it now, so she's home. Uh, she's home. Uh, it seems to have a mild case, so check on her when I get home. Um, I want to open up by saying this morning that uh, this, I find this passage of Scripture perplexing, vexing, uh, confusing, uh, all the words, all the words that would make me uh, feel confused. I find this passage to be that. And uh, I even wrote the sermon and then yesterday morning trashed it uh, Jessica's off at Strength to Stand, so I came over, trashed all the bulletins, and reprinted them with a new outline. That's how confusing I find this passage to be. Don't clap for me because I can run Microsoft Word. I mean, 
Uh, I also got to run the folding machine, which was fun. I've never done that before, but... Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I am capable of printing out stuff on the copier. The point is, is that this, this passage of Scripture is an interesting one because we're right... Look at the situation on the ground. Jesus has ascended... And the Holy Spirit has not come yet. The lines of Scripture that we're reading today recount the only history that we have of that moment, the period of time between Jesus ascending and, you know, the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the foundation of the church. You know, Acts chapter 2 is when the church began. So this is an odd time. And uh, I can't tell if I like what the disciples are doing or the apostles. I can't tell if I like what they're doing or I hate what they're doing. So I'm confused. I'm just going to tell you. So this represents my best understanding of this passage. And uh, if anybody wants to come to me afterwards and say, you got it all wrong, I would probably say, uh, I'm, I'm willing to entertain that. Let's talk about it. I see in this passage this morning uh, a, a contrast between good and evil. Um, I see we, we, the, the passage opens with uh, the, the community, the fellowship of believers that are followers of Jesus Christ. And then we take this aside and we talk about Jesus or Judas, not Jesus, Judas, and, um, and it's really bad. And then we end the passage by talking again about the community of saints and, and what they're doing. And so there seems to be a contrast here between those who follow Jesus and those who reject them. And, and so that's the big question that I'm asking. What, what contrasts do we see between those who follow Jesus and those who reject them in this passage, this weird, wild passage between the ascension of Jesus into the clouds and the coming of the Holy Spirit? What we see, first of all, is this. We see the community of believers, the community of believers Look at verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, I know you're going to ask, what is a Sabbath day's journey? Well, I think my, you know, my understanding is it's about three quarters of a mile. And then you ask the question, well, why? What, why, does, why is there such a thing called a Sabbath day's journey? Well, if you remember your Old Testament law at all, you'll know that God wanted the Sabbath to be all about Him right rest in him and so he put severe limitations on what you could do you're not supposed to cook on that day you're not supposed to do any work on that day and lest the sinful human heart decide you know what can't do anything else on the sabbath i got business in toledo tomorrow let's walk to toledo today god even put a limitation on how far you could walk on the sabbath right so uh you could you could apparently go about three quarters of a mile on the sabbath day and so that's how about how far all of the Mount of Olives was from Jerusalem. I've been to the Mount of Olives, been to Jerusalem. It's accurate. It's about three quarters of a mile walk. Uh, and so they, they, they went that way. Verse 13, then they, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot. I wonder what you got to do in your life to be called the Zealot. Uh, Anyway, Judas, the son of James, as to be distinguished from Judas Iscariot, uh, Judas, son of James, different Judas, in other words, all of these were, were with one accord, all these were with, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, 
the son of Jesus, and his brothers. So they're, they, they've walked home. They've, they're following Jesus' command. His last command was, you know, wait in Jerusalem. He, they're back in Jerusalem, and uh, they're in the upper room. Now, we don't know if this was the upper room where they took the Passover, you know, before Jesus died, you know, the Last Supper. We don't know that. But um, uh, they're up there, and they're, they're joined together, and they're praying. Brings to mind uh, Daniel, right? Daniel would go... Uh, Daniel was commanded, the king made an edict that you can't pray to anybody but the king, right? And Daniel went to his upper room and he prayed as it was his custom to do. And so you see the, the followers, the community of believers, they're going to, the, to this upper room and they're praying. And they are commanded, they are commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. Uh, we saw that in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, says, and while they were staying... Jesus ordered them, right, do not depart from Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. Uh, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. So that's what they were supposed to do. Supposed to wait in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they were doing. And you got to wonder, uh, you got to wonder, what were the disciples, what were these people experiencing? The text doesn't really come right out and tell us. Are they experiencing sadness because Jesus was no longer with them, right? He, he had ascended, he was gone. Were they just so kind of shell-shocked by the whole thing that had happened with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that they were just reeling? Uh, were, they, were they happy? Were, you know, were they optimistic about the future because they knew that God had given them this mission of being witnesses uh, locally, regionally, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, were, they, were they optimistic? Were they kind of gearing up for that? We don't know, right? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is whatever emotions and whatever thinking was going on in their head, they had decided to gather themselves in Jerusalem as they were commanded in this upper room, and they were praying. They were devoting themselves to God. They were praying. They were practicing prayer and fellowship. Prayer and fellowship. Now there's a, I just want to take a couple of minutes here to talk about something. Um, it says they were of one accord. That word really has the idea that they were, they were of the same mind, they were unified. Um, and and I, I want to talk about that for a minute because there's a lot of stuff going on today that we have to deal with as people, as citizens of the United States and in our individual lives and whatever. And I just want to repeat again uh, something that I think is clear from the Scripture, but I want to say it again. Unity in the church does not mean that we have to agree on everything. Do you understand that, right? Like, we have, to we have to agree on the big things, you know. We have to agree that Jesus was God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, never ever sinned, he was God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, right? And that... that that death that he died on the cross was sufficient to take away all our sin because he was the perfect, holy, spotless Lamb of God. Right? There, there are things that we must believe that the Bible is God's word, that it is without error. Right? It's, it's, all, it's what we need for life and godliness. There are things that we must believe to be Christians. right? And we have unity in these things. But there are 
specific things in this life, specific practices that one Christian may find wise, another Christian may find to be unwise, one Christian may think is, is perfectly okay to practice, another Christian might think is sinful, and it's a matter of, it's, a, it's either a minor thing or it's a matter of unclarity in the script, a lack of clarity in the scripture as to what we're supposed to do exactly. And on those things, on those things, we are not to divide. We are to be unified. And I want to just say this again, that that needs to be and ought to be a feature of the church. It's not a glitch. Why do I say that? Look at the world around us. Look at the world around us just really quick and understand that let's just say that you're a person and you, you are working in an office and you hold an opinion that's different than everybody else in your office about, I don't know, a certain presidential candidate. Pick your one. I don't, I don't have any in mind. A certain presidential candidate. But everybody is on that thinks that, that their candidate is the best and that your candidate is the biggest idiot that ever walked the face of the planet right? There's division there, right? There's division. In other words, part of our witness, part of our witness to, you know, for Jesus Christ locally, regionally, to the ends of the earth, part of our witness is that uh, on the fundamental things we, we agree, but on the, on the debatable things, on the, on the conscience issues, so to speak, we we may disagree, but we can do so lovingly. It's a feature. It's not a flaw of being a Christian. We need to remember that. We need to practice humility when it comes to the, the minutia things that we practice in our lives. And we see other people not practicing the same minutia that we practice. And so we begin to, what? We begin to put our glasses down on our nose and go, well, they must not be very holy. Because they do not have a red-letter Bible, and a red-letter Bible is the way to go, don't you know? Or whatever. You get the, pick, your, pick your issue, right? There's nothing more or less holy about a red-letter Bible. So we need, to, we need to understand that this whole one accord thing and unity in the church is important. In uh, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, uh, and this is kind of the other aspect that, that's being talked about, I think, in this passage, which is a, the, the aspect of community. In, uh, in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, this is kind of the penultimate passage on the, the, that the body of Christ is to exist in community with one another. We are to exist, uh, we are not to separate ourselves from the body of Christ, but we are to be in community with one another. Let, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This, in this passage, I see three things, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that is that in order for us to be living the way God wants us to live, we have to spend time with one another, okay? Uh, let us cons uh, not neglecting to meet together, right? Uh, so we have to do that on a continuous basis. We have to spend time in proximity with one another. We meet together, right? We meet together. And we have to be able to challenge one another. Uh, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That word stir up means provoke, right? Uh, and so we have to be a people 
who has decided that we are going to talk to one another when we see someone going off the rails of their, of their life. They're, they're walking away from what the Bible clearly teaches. And we have to be ones that are willing to receive challenge when we are going off of the path of righteousness. When, when somebody loves you well enough to come alongside you and say, hey, you know, pay attention to what you're doing here. You're going off the path that we have to say, thank you. Oh, thank you for loving me to tell me because uh, you're right, I am going off the path. And, and so in this little gathering in this upper room, which by the way is the very, very beginning germ of what would become, what's going to become in our next passage, the church. It's these 120 people that are gathered in this room that are going to become the forefathers and foremothers, so to speak, of who we are today. It's the beginning of the church. Uh, that these people are existing in community and they are existing in unity. So, we're presented with the first scene. A group of people that follow Jesus together, joined in prayer, united and devoted. This scene is going to be contrasted with the very next scene, which is the dark and lonely path of sin. The dark and lonely path of sin. In, uh, when we studied Esther, we learned that it is Jewish tradition that whenever Haman's name is mentioned, what do, what do the kids do? Every time Haman's name comes up in Esther, you hiss. That's kind of like Judas, right? Judas, Judas is a name that, that um, when you think of him, you think of traitor, you think of betrayer, you think bad thoughts, the son of perdition. Verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 in all, right? And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all uh, in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. I don't know if you've ever had the occasion to see a creature with all of its bowels gushed out. I've done it twice. Both animals, neither one of them human. Uh, it's not a pretty sight. It's it's disgusting. Because uh, give it about five minutes on a summer day, and the smell and the flies. Anyway, burst open in the middle, all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that that field was called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and may there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So there's a, there's a few things in this passage we need to bring out about Judas. Number one, he was numbered among them and was allotted his share in the ministry. What does that mean? Well, Jesus, when he was still alive and among them and teaching them, in Matthew 19, 28, he said this. Jesus said to them, and in the context, the them is the disciples. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, that's him, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So, so this stake that Judas had in this ministry was not a trivial thing, right? It was a, it was a, it was a big deal. And he had, he had apostatized. He had betrayed. He had turned around and gone the other direction. And so I want us to just notice, we just, we just made a contract. We, we, just, we just said something about this community. Com- a community, a, a bunch of people living together, devoting themselves to prayer in one accord. Contrast that with Judas. Judas left the community. He went on a clandestine operation, right? To go to these Jewish leaders and to make a private deal. You see the contrast yet? You see, it's just starting to... He left the community and he made a deal Instead of being devoted to the community, he was devoted to himself. Interesting stuff. Luke 22, 3-6 says this, Then Satan, this is uh, Luke's account of what happened, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. By the way, uh, have some fun this week. Look up what Iscariot means. Uh, You have the internet. You can do that. Who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Even his betrayal, right? He was going to try to pull off this betrayal as privately as he could. Now, what was, Ju- what was the motivation of Judas? And the bottom line is, we don't know. We don't know. Was, he, was it simple greed? Probably not. Probably not. He had access to the treasury. But I don't know. It could have been just simple greed. But here's another possibility. You remember last week, the, G- the uh, apostles had just asked Jesus. I mean, the apostles minus Judas, so it's the 11. They had just asked Jesus, is now the time that you're going to set up the kingdom? And I want to say that these guys were fixated on this thing, right? The Roman Empire was not a good deal for them to live under. They were fixated on the fact that Jesus was there to set up the, the new you know, Jewish kingdom, to restore the glory days of Israel, and to vanquish all of her enemies, right? And it could have been, this is my speculation, it could have been that Judas was simply unhappy with what, the direction that Jesus was heading. He was not heading in the direction of overthrowing the Roman Empire at all. In fact, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so so maybe Judas was just extremely frustrated or he had convinced himself temporarily anyway that this this couldn't be the Messiah because if this was God's Messiah, he would be setting up the kingdom. I I don't know what his motivation was, but we know this is that... uh, he left the community. He was motivated enough to leave the community and to go make a private deal. And then we know the outcome, the fruit, the result of his life, that he died alone and in a gruesome way. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Let's read on that for just a second. Matthew 27. I didn't put it up on the screen. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 3.
Matthew 27, 3 and following says, Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. When he saw that he was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put in put them into the treasury since it is blood money so they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day then was spoken spoken then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah saying and they took the 30 pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of israel and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, a few things just to point out. There are some who are outside of the body of Christ, they're unbelievers, who would point to uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account in Acts as being in conflict with one another. Because Matthew says that Judas hung himself and the priests bought the field. And Acts seems to be saying that Judas fell headlong and his, his bowels gushed out everywhere. And he bought the field. Judas himself had bought the field. Now these two things uh, are seeming contradictions and people point to them and make a big yah-yah about, about the Bible being unreliable. But, um, but there's a simple explanation to this, which is that a couple things. First of all, obviously the rope that they had back then and whatever uh, wasn't to today's standards and so whatever rope that Judas uh, scrounged up to hang himself it may have broken or the branch that he hung himself by may have broken and so after hanging himself the rope might have broken or or the branch might have broken and he fell and uh, fell headlong and um, his bowels broke, burst open that's one possibility that, that would synchronize or help us to understand those two passages the other thing about the, the purchasing of the field is is that uh, in, you have to understand Jewish law. If, if, if those chief priests had taken that, that blood money that they were not allowed to put in the treasury and they went out and they purchased that field, presumably where Judas had died, then uh, they would have, the, the, name of that, the name on that deed, because of the money that they could not receive, the, money, the, the name on that deed or, or the one who would have been known to have been the owner would have been Judas, even if the chief priests made the transaction. So it's easily reconciled. The point is, is that uh, he died alone in a very gruesome way. And uh, as we're going to see in a minute, prophecy, all kinds of prophecies were fulfilled in, his, in the way that he died. Let's talk about his death for just a minute. Um, he died a lonely, in a lonely and gruesome way. Uh, I was reading some commentaries, and it, it didn't take long to come to the conclusion of, of why Judas found himself in such a, a spot of desperation. If you look at just about three things, first of all, his own conscience, his own conscience condemned him. In other words, it's clear from Matthew's text that Judas was like, what have I done? 
uh, you know, he, he, was, um, he was convicted that he had done sin. He had done wrong. Uh, number two, he knew that he was operating outside of the will of God. I mean, he said in, in Matthew's account that he, had, he I have sinned in doing this thing. But I also want you to note something, uh, I also want you to note something too, which is that Judas probably knew that he had lost the approval of his fellow man. Meaning, if Judas goes back to that upper room, it's, let's say he doesn't hang himself, he goes back to that upper room, is he going to find a welcome audience there? And he probably knew that the answer to that question was no. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. And so with these things weighing on him, he became overwhelmed and he killed himself. He killed himself. Now, Peter goes on in, this, in Acts 1 to quote a couple of passages. Uh, he quotes Psalm 69.25. Uh, May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Here's this patch of land that has been purchased with this blood money. And the priest, Matthew's account, tells us that the priests are going to use that to bury strangers. It's going to be a, a graveyard for strangers. You know, it, in every area of the country, there's, there's this weird situation that goes on. People, you pro probably don't think about it much, but every once in a while, someone who's homeless, who has no family that we know of, they, they die. Uh, my wife told me about a, a situation at the hospital where that happened. There was, it was, they were unable to contact any next of kin, didn't know if there was any next of kin. The person was, uh, didn't have any family, immediate family or anything. And so what happens in situations like that is that that person's body is cremated and they're, they're, uh, they're buried. There, there's a time period that goes by and they're eventually buried in a place like what's being described here. A, a, a field for, uh, you know, a feel for strangers. And so this prophecy comes to pass. This land that Judas now presumably owns, even in his death, is a place of desolation, and no one dwells there, only dead bodies. The second passage that Peter quotes is Psalm 109.8. The wicked, uh, it says, uh, May his days be few, may, may another take his office. And so Peter is going to use this as motivation for the group to replace Judas. In other words, Judas has no part in this ministry anymore. We're going to replace him. And of course, he needs to be replaced because he's dead, but also because uh, Jesus put a number on them of 12. So the wicked accuser of God will be replaced. Now I want to I share something that's kind of difficult before we go on to the third scene here which is which is this Judas is called by Jesus in <clears throat> not by name but he's recognized as as being at the table in John 17:12 as the son of perdition the ESV translate that translates that the son of destruction that word can mean utter destruction or that word can mean even hell the son of perdition, the son of utter destruction, the son of hell. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there's only a couple of people in all of Scripture that are identified as being beyond salvation. 
And Judas is one of them. And that's a harrowing thought. But it's a thought that we need to we need to rest on here for just a moment. And the reason that we need to rest on it and, and to take it all in for a moment is because apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, every single one of us in this room are Judas. Because Judas got justice. He got what he deserved. And if we, each one of us, got what we deserved, we would also get death and hell. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because he died on the cross and bore our sins, instead of getting what we deserve, justice, we get what we don't deserve. We get God's grace. We get the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as Savior from our sin and to begin to follow Him and make Him the Lord of our lives, which is an opportunity that is wonderful. And so, when we read like the warning passages in Hebrews 6, um, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, we have to understand that this gift that we've been given of God's grace needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be taken with the weight in which it was offered because it cost the, the life of Jesus himself to pay for our sin. And so we need to be serious and sincere about our walk with the Lord. Not separating ourselves from the community as Judas did. Not practicing hidden sin like Judas did but instead dwelling in community and walking in the light as we are commanded to do. And so I just want to say, I just want to, say to you before we move on that, that, um, that if there is hidden sin in your life, my, my exhortation to you is, is, to, is to confess it and forsake it. You've been given the grace of Jesus Christ Take it seriously. Not only will it, not only is that something that will enhance your own life, is to confess your sin and, and to walk with the Lord and allow Him to shape your life into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, but it will enhance your witness. Remember, there are people around you every day when you go out into the world who don't know Him yet. And so you want to be the best witness you can be Judas is an anti-witness. So the first scene is contrasted with the second. The first being of men and women united and fellowshipping together around their, fo their following of Jesus Christ. The second being a man who has decided that his priority is what he wants to the detriment of the community. And now Luke returns to the first scene or, or to the first group of people to complete the contrast. And that is number three, the resolve and the recognition in the community of the righteous one. Verse 21 says this, so one of the men, uh, this is Peter still talking, so, of, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism, baptism of John, that's what people think about as Jesus, the initiation of Jesus' earthly ministry, the baptism of John, all the way till the day when he was taken up from us, so that just happened, one of these men must become with us a 
a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. There was two of them. Okay, besides the 12, minus Judas, there was two. Two that had followed that consistently throughout that whole period of time. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. It wasn't unusual for people to have a, both a Hebrew name and a, a Greek name, or, or a, a you know, Roman name, uh, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go down to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So a few things to, to mention. Again, this is a contrast. Judas ends his life, and these guys, they seem to be getting ready for the next phase of ministry. And I, I say that because they're, they're saying, okay, well, we need 12, we have 11, so let's, let's, let's figure out how to, to add one to the group. In other words, the adversity that Judas faced in his life made him not only make these poor decisions, but in, in the making of those poor decisions, he concluded that all I have left to do is to kill, my, kill myself, to end my life. The disciples are going through a tough time. The apostles are going through a tough time. They, not only do they know that Jesus is no longer with them, but when Jesus was among them, he said, look, you're going to, you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses. And at, at certain points, he told them, you're going to drink the cup that I'm drinking. In other words, the world is not going to like you, and it may even cost your life. In other words, Judas committed suicide, and these guys were about to go on a suicide mission. We know from church history that what all but John were martyred. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, started having visions, and wrote the Revelation. So these guys' lives were not going to be easy. And how did they deal with that adversity? They said, giddy up. Let's, let's, fill, let's fill Judah's spot and let's go. And so they did. The qualification that they picked was that they needed to replace Judas with someone who followed Jesus consistently, all the way from the beginning, his baptism, until recently, his ascension. And there was only two that were qualified. I'm reminded in this of, of Luke chapter 9, verse 62, when Jesus said this, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, once you decide to follow Jesus, you really need to just keep following him. Like, just keep, just keep going. Just keep following. And these were these two men, this Justice and Matthias. Now, I'm going to admit to you, as I'm going to keep saying this until the sermon is over, I, the next part perplexes me. I get it, but it perplexes me. First of all, they, they pray. They bring God into the equation. They say, God, we need your help. We need your help to pick from among these two. We, we've set out the qualifications. We, we used our brains the best we could. The Holy Spirit hasn't given them you know, all the tools that they need yet, but they've, they've used their brains. They've come up with these qualifications. There's two guys that fit the qualifications. And so they ask God for help in deciding which man should take the spot, and in order to let God make that decision, they cast lots. Aren't you glad we don't do that today? <laughs> what would that even look like in the church today? I don't know, but it, it's very perplexing to me that they did that, and they did. Now, we know the, the, the writer of Proverbs says that the diviner cast the lot in his lap, but God makes the decision, 
right? And so um, somehow, in, as part of God's sovereign plan, Matthias was chosen, and Matthias's, Matthias's name means gift of God. Now, why is this perplexing? I don't know why they picked lots. We never hear of anybody casting lots again in the New Testament. And, in the, in, and before this period in the, in the New Testament, the last time that lots were cast, what was going on? The soldiers were gambling for Jesus' clothes, right? So this is a very perplexing... I don't, I don't know quite why they did what they did, but this is the way they did it, and they, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was named, he was numbered with the 11. Now, this is the part where my, my brain blows up, and I, I'm just going to acknowledge it and move on so um, you don't have to see the carnage. But there's tension in the, in the choice of Matthias. There's tension in the choice, right? Because apostle, the word apostle means sent one. The closest thing that we have to an apostle today is a missionary, right? Somebody that we send out from here to go over there and do ministry, right? But we don't call them apostles today. We call them missionaries. But, you know, we, somebody could convince me maybe that we could, we could use apostle of the Delaware Bible Church, right? Um, that'd be okay. But the tension is that in Revelation chapter 21, we've got this line. This is describing the new Jerusalem. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the, the names, on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so I just kind of, my brain gets a little bit of a meltdown state when I wonder which name is on there, Matthias or Paul? And I don't know. I don't know. I know that Matthias was chosen by the 11 and Paul was put into service by Jesus himself. So I kind of think it's Paul. So then why did they choose Matthias? Was that a bad decision? Some commentators say it was. Some commentators say they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They should have waited and they should have waited till later and let Jesus pick the 12th apostle. But, but, but in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see that Matthias was one of them that was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues. So it's confusing. It's confusing. There's tension there, and I don't know how to resolve it. Other than to say, you know, I live, I, I, I have peace with this passage because I just tell myself, Paul is the 12th apostle because he was sent by Jesus himself. Matthias was an apostle of the apostles, kind of like Barnabas was an apostle of the church in Antioch. Is this too much minutia? Probably, but my, this is the way my brain works, and it's a curse. It's not a big deal. It doesn't change anything the way we're supposed to live or anything. It's just I wonder about this Matthias guy from time to time. And I know people say he's never heard from again, but neither is Bartholomew. So you got that going. All you hear about mostly for the rest of the New Testament is Peter, James, John, and Paul. Mostly. So, what are the contrasts in this passage between those who follow Jesus and those who reject him? Well, here's my answer. The, the contrast between those who follow Jesus and those who reject him are pretty clear. The followers of Jesus pursue unity within community and are recognized for their consistency. Whereas those who reject Jesus often find themselves alone and filled with self-hatred. Now, 
I've wrestled with whether, again, I've wrestled all kinds of ways with this text. Um, I thought I was getting ahead to study this two or three weeks ahead of the sermon, but I'm still perplexed by it. Is this a prescriptive text, a descriptive text? I'm trying to pull out of this the things that I think are consistent across the New Testament without saying that, hey, this, this, this text says that we have to live in this specific way. There's other texts, in other words, that say that we are to live in unity and community and consistency. And there are other texts that seem to indicate that rejecting Jesus will, will put you in a very lonely, a lonely place. So it's difficult. And I embrace the, the difficulty of it. Here's a couple of uh, applications as we, as we leave here today. Uh, obviously, one of them is to resolve to follow Jesus consistently and in community. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm looking at the live stream camera saying there's a few people that are still at home from COVID. I understand that we're in COVID time. But we have to understand that we're only going to be able to practice our faith as we do so within the community. Even if you're home because of COVID, uh, you can call others. Others can call you, check in. We can have fellowship the best that we can during this weird time that hopefully is coming to an end soon. But we need each other because as we come together and try to do big things like building onto the building or evangelizing Delaware, Ohio or whatever, as we come together and try to accomplish the mission, there's going to be conflict, right? There's going to be sparks fly. And, and as long as we're unified about what God's word says and we are willing to work through the problems that we face together biblically, God will grow our character. He'll shape our, ourselves into the image of Christ. And, and we need each other to do that. And so we have to exist in community and we have to follow Jesus consistently. And so uh, for, the, for anyone who thinks that you can, you can like adopt kind of what I consider to be like a um, New Year's resolution Christianity, you know. Hey, I'm going to church. Uh, that's my New Year's resolution. going to go to church and, uh, and try to follow Jesus. And then, you know, by, by uh, February, uh, you stop. And then next year, same thing. And then you stop. And that's, you're not going to grow much doing that. I'm just warning you because you're going to have to recover the same ground over and over again. And so resolve to make not only your church attendance, but your study of God's word and your, your practice of ministry consistent. Make it a part of your everyday. And then finally, and this is just a warning, and if you don't need to look any further than Judas to see the consequences of the warning, don't hide sin. I've been going to this church for nine years plus, coming up on 10 in August. And I can tell you what I know about this church, and this is, a, this is especially for you that aren't as familiar with each other. I can tell you this. I've never seen a circumstance where a brother or sister came to another brother or sister or a small group and said, I am really struggling with X, whatever X is, sin. And, and I, I've never been in a situation where that then person found rejection and isolation. No, no, no. They found embrace, acceptance, and a willingness to help bring accountability and growth and change. That's the way we ought to be in this church. I think that's the way we are, but do we access it enough? When you're struggling with a sin and you're tempted to hide it, are you instead bringing it into the light? Recognize the danger of not doing that. Recognize Judas, right? 
Recognize the, 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 the vortex that sin can suck us into if we're not cautious. And if, you're, if the warning isn't sufficient, then just remember, the, that God's, remember God's grace. That when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just the, just the superficial churchy unrighteousness, just the kind of medium-level unrighteousness, or the really nasty, disgusting unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to open up your word and to study it. We're encouraged, Father, by the fact of what, the, what we see these apostles doing, despite the difficulty that lie ahead of them, uh, how they're responding. And we're encouraged and we are uh, challenged to do the same, even though we face difficulties in this, in this world that we live in. We're also, Father, uh, horrified by what happened to Judas. And, uh, Father, if, if, if each one of us would just humble ourselves for just a moment and, and acknowledge the sin that remains in our lives, then, Father, we would be diligent in looking at the example of Judas to, to confess, to repent of it, and to, um, within the community, to, to, um, to walk according to your ways because they are life-giving, to turn away from sin because it is death. And, and in doing so, Father, not only will we grow and change and become more like your son Jesus, but our witness of him will be enhanced. So help us, Father, with all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.